So, Mark. Yes. You know what a MacGuffin is. I do indeed. It's an object that motivates plot. What it is doesn't really matter. It's just the thing that people need to get or that people are trying to get. And it's a pretty common device used in movies. Do you know where it comes from? I could not answer that. I do not. I do know that the bars at AMC theaters, if such a thing still exists when this episode comes out, are called MacGuffins, which I kind of like. Apparently, the term was originated by Agnes Fail and was popularized by Alfred Hitchcock. This Hmm. is according to Wikipedia. I trust it. Agnes McPhail, like everyone writing movies in the early part of the 20th century, wrote like a hundred movies. The amount of movies people used to write. Or direct or act and they just churned them out. Yeah. Anyway, Mark, my point is, what is your favorite MacGuffin? So in terms of terrible MacGuffins, I think my favorite- Which is my... not technically the question, but please run with this. I have two. One is a bad example of a MacGuffin, and one is a good example of a MacGuffin. The bad example is the classic unobtainium from the film Avatar, which is just calling it MacGuffinium. Like, there's no effort put into really explaining why it matters. It's just called unobtainium. It drove me insane. Okay, have you been looking at the set photos from Avatar 2, though? I've seen one, and it looks pretty cool. It looks really cool. And I think the movies will again be beautiful, but my hope for the story is still fairly low. I'm excited. We've retweeted some of them from the show account, so if you dig back, you can find them or just go to the official Avatar Twitter. I do love that Twitter account because, I'm on the record, I think Avatar is a good movie. I think it is spectacle and it does that job very well. But the Avatar Twitter account is like always throwing out like greetings or stuff in the Navi language like it's a thing that we're all familiar with. And I like that level of commitment. Avatar does not think it's just spectacle and good at spectacle. I think it mostly does. I mean, that's why you take 10 years off to wait for special effects to upgrade. That is true. But he does love the Navi, I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, More he's than anyone he else. has said like... I can't think of another story I want to tell in my life that I cannot tell with the Navi. Wow. Yikes. (laughs) Anyway, I mean, it's a classic example, but I think the only truly well-done MacGuffin might be the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Oh, sure. Because it's one you just genuinely don't care what's in the briefcase. And at most MacGuffins, including in the movie we're discussing today, I want to know more because it just annoys me that they didn't put the effort into explaining it. But in Pulp Fiction, it's just, it doesn't matter. The movie knows it doesn't matter. And it does it in a way where it actually works. Unlike in this movie, where I hate this movie, but I still need to know at least one thing about the Book of Peace. And we'll probably talk about this later, but still. Oh, we definitely will. I think the most obvious examples of MacGuffins in recent movies are the fact that the Marvel movies are just riddled with them. You've got the Infinity Stones, the Tesseract, the Casket of Ancient Winters. Like, all of these things are just, like... Weird, powerful somethings that people are fighting to get. What do they do? I don't know. Like, in Guardians of the Galaxy, the orb, which is an infinity stone, what does it do? It blows out powerful bursts of energy. Like, doesn't matter what it is. I think the best version of this is probably the Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just a powerful thing. It's not 100% clear what it does. Everyone wants it. Wanting it is enough to drive the plot. At least with Ark of the Covenant... We all kind of know what it is, but I agree that it is still a MacGuffin. 
But I think one of the reasons it works a little better, and same with the Holy Grail. Both of them are good. I mean, the Grail is like the original MacGuffin. What does it do? Eh. It's just like you have a reference point for it. And it helps when there's some sort of reference point. Whereas for this movie, that does not exist. (laughs) Oh, oh, the Book of Peace didn't immediately make sense to you? I have so much to yell about with this movie. Here's the thing. The Book of Peace clearly has multiple pages. What does it show if you go to the other pages? I don't know. All right, we got to get into this. (laughs) Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this is a podcast dedicated to examining... One of the most important, unimportant questions of our day. Namely, what is the Book of Peace? I was going to make that exact same joke after you said, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? (laughs) I think we're concerned with both questions today. Yeah, I think (laughs) what is the Book of Peace makes it into our questions that drive the show today. Maybe forever. And also, are these people actually dateable or even likable? But they're all definitely f***ing. (laughs) <laughs> oh, absolutely. It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are looking at the last of DreamWorks Animation's 2D films, Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas. So I want to start this discussion with a comparison of the inherent racism of both Aladdin and Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas. Okay. I can't tell which is worse. I think Aladdin might be worse because it perpetuates actual negative stereotypes about Arab people. But this movie literally just stole the name Sinbad and gave no reference to any sort of plot points from the story or reference to the fact that it's a middle eastern tale it drove me insane so i have a couple of pieces of information responding to all of this because i found some really fascinating stuff about sinbad reading online so number one is i do think that the (laughs) the island that is actually a fish is in the sinbad stories i think that made it over okay the other thing is that this of course is a movie from dreamworks animation in its early years Which means that like many of them, particularly like the 2D animated ones, this was an idea that Jeffrey Katzenberg had been kicking around for a while since the days when he was running animation at Disney. And Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, the screenwriters of Disney's Aladdin, as well as Shrek and Pirates of the Caribbean Curse of the Black Pearl, after writing Aladdin, pitched Katzenberg on a movie based on the Greek myth of Damon and Pythias. Okay, now I have read the Wikipedia page for that. And boy, does the homoeroticism of this movie make a lot more sense. Yes. So they were pitching a, like, I mean, it was it was for Disney. So they were pitching a really, really deep friendship movie. And Katzenberg was like, cool, I kind of like this stuff. I've been wanting to make a Sinbad movie. Like, can we merge these ideas? So for the most part, this movie is building on the Damon and Pythias thing. They then hired John Logan, who had just written Gladiator. And Elliot and Rossio, like, had written up a treatment for Sinbad for basically a totally different movie that we can talk more about later. I actually have their treatment. It's on Terry Rossio's old blog from the early 2000s. And they hire John Logan, and he's like, cool, send me the Sinbad story so I can read it and adapt it. And the answer he got back was like, there are actually a bunch of Sinbad stories written at different times. Sinbad's not in the original Thousand and One Nights. He first appears in it in, like, the 17th century. Right. In the French translation is one of the earliest records of it. Right. And then on top of that, there are like similar legends around the Mediterranean of similar kinds of figures. We know, for example, that P. 
people in the places where the Thousand and One Nights was written also like read a lot of Homer. And so there's some thinking that that plays an influence too. And so John Logan is basically like, well, I just wrote Gladiator. So I'm really comfortable with Greco-Roman stuff. So I'm going to commit to that side of like Sinbad stories. I love on TV tropes, the phrase Grome, which really applies in that statement alone, where he was like, I wrote a movie about Rome and only Rome, but clearly that makes me an expert on Greece too. Well, yes, naturally. I find it interesting that probably three of the most famous, if not the most famous tales from the Thousand and One Nights are from the original tales. Aladdin, Sinbad, and Alibaba were all later editions that aren't really known until the French translation in the 1700s. Yeah, that is weird. It's just interesting. But, I mean, the Greek influence on the tales makes sense to me, but it's still like, why didn't you just make it a Greek movie instead of adding Sinbad? Because you would have to change literally nothing else. Right, you just change the names. You just And changed. no one would know it was a Sinbad movie. Yeah, but I guess they wanted to take that plot where no one else now can do a Sinbad animated movie. I mean, I'm sure that's not why they did that. Katzenberg did want to make a Sinbad movie, but he had this Damon and Pythias pitch, and he was like, these things could kind of merge. Now, it's worth noting that that original version that they write in 94 after doing Aladdin is nothing like the movie that we watched. That one is like supposed to be a like screwball rom-com in which the Sinbad character is an apprentice map maker and he winds up getting sent on an expedition to like buy a ship for his map maker boss and he has like a flirty romance with a dashing thief lady I, I read it over it's like kind of fun there is some Greek stuff there's a Gorgon who's involved but it definitely has more Middle Eastern aspects to it yeah it's just It was so frustrating to me. And one problem at the same time that is just a me thing, and I doubt anyone else will relate, but the Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy kind of ruined the character of Eris for me. Because in the Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, she's a very frequent antagonist, but she's like a blonde valley girl that also just likes chaos. And it's very bizarre, but that is what I think of when I think of Eris, even in my head with the Iliad. So watching this in the, like, sexy, dark heiress was also kind of weird for me. You should know that Michelle Pfeiffer was repeatedly told to make it less sexy. (laughs) I mean, it's on them for casting Michelle Pfeiffer. They should have known what they were getting. She offered to quit. (laughs) Like, if you cast Michelle Pfeiffer in a villain role, it's gonna be a sexy villain. There's no way around it, and it will not be good for children. Well, this movie isn't good for anyone who's part of the issue. Exactly. I truly did not like Brad Pitt's voice acting in this movie either. I think it's all right. I think he is a good actor, but I just, I don't know. I think it's too Brad Pitt. Like, he just sounds too Brad Pitt. It was distracting for me. I couldn't get into it. The Pfeiffer thing that I said came from a piece that Entertainment Weekly did on the movie just before it came out. And in that, Brad Pitt too was like, are you guys sure you want to cast me? Like... I'm gonna sound like I'm from the South Central United States. And they were like, no, no, it's good. It'll make you more accessible. The accent part doesn't even bother me. Like, that's not what gets me. I just sounds too much like Brad Pitt. And I just couldn't get into the character at all. And it doesn't help that the character sucks, too. Yeah, he's no good. Catherine Zeta-Jones was better than I expected. She is, but again, it's the... 
it's the issue that just like everything in this movie is like fairly terrible. The animation is pretty ugly. Yeah. And the story is dumb. One of the other interesting things that I found on Terry Rossio's blog was a column he wrote called The $100 Million Mistake, which is basically just him writing like about mistakes that studios make in stories that lead to bad movies. And he has a whole long section on Sinbad and on why Sinbad turned into a disaster. He, of course, did not write Sinbad. He co-wrote a treatment and then was a consultant on the movie. And in the original version of the movie that John Logan wrote, for starters, our MacGuffin is different. It's not the Book of Peace, which makes zero sense. It is the Book of Fates, which automatically has clearer stakes attached to it. And some relationship to the Greek myth, which it's drawing from. So in the original version of the script, the king of Syracuse dies. Proteus is not the heir. He's the captain of the guard. The Book of Fates will reveal the name of the next king. So they need the book to find that out. Eris wants chaos. So she's like, we're not going to know who the king is. So she takes the book. So now we've got, like, actual stakes. Like, it, we, it's clear why it matters, whether they get the book back. That's so much better. Yes. So they have to go get the book. And then also, like, Proteus' sacrifice is a thing of, like, oh, clearly, like, he is worthy to be the next king, like people thought, because, like, he's willing to make this sacrifice for other people. Then, like, the twist at the end of the movie, because Elliot and Rossio were really adamant that Sinbad should not end up with the Marina character, who at this point was called Roxanne, because they were, like, then Proteus is just, like, the guy who, like makes all the self-sacrificing choices and also is left alone at the end of the movie. So in that version, they get back and the book is like, J.K. Roxanne is the worthy person to be queen of Syracuse. And then Sinbad's like, well, I'm committed to the sea, so I'm leaving. And Roxanne ends up with Proteus. Yeah, Proteus gets completely f***ed over in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, the movie treats him terribly. (laughs) The movie treats him like shit. First, his boyfriend, like, (laughs) runs away to the ocean. (laughs) Then... He volunteers to be executed in his ex-boyfriend's stead. His fiance runs away with the ex-boyfriend. And then when they come back, he has to like do the yesterday move and be like, no, you're in love with him. I'm totally cool with you leaving me. Yeah, he's just like, have fun at sea with my ex-boyfriend. It makes no sense. It's one of the worst love triangles in a movie I've seen where... Proteus is just a good guy. He is king of Syracuse, or will be king of Syracuse. And Marina's just like, "Mm, fuck you. Uh, Sinbad was nice to me for one minute after treating me like absolute horseshit. And now I'm in love with him. So the third of these three pieces by Terry Rossio running down the making of Sinbad includes a memo that he sent to, like, all of the executives at DreamWorks on why it was a terrible idea to have Marina and Sinbad get together. It's long. And he's like coming up with this whole theory of like how romantic drama should be built. But he's also like pointing out valid things that like if Marina and Sinbad get together, then like a lot of the other choices look dumb. Like her decision to go along with Sinbad is like, oh, well, I guess she wasn't like that into Proteus because it takes her like, two days to fall in love with someone else so i don't really know why she went along like the love triangle isn't that meaningful because we're just like all right i guess that relationship was nothing i guess the idea is that she's actually in love with the sea oh he talks about that too where he's like sinbad shouldn't have a permanent woman because he's in love with the sea he needs to be an archetypal sailor Yeah, which I guess if Marina is also only in love with the sea, they're just together out of convenience. Elliot and Rossio did successfully talk 
Katzenberg down from showing Sinbad and Marina's children in the movie. Ugh, that would be so awful. It's not good. This movie drives me insane. And I know it was 2003, so Kale wasn't a thing. But the fact that there's a character named Kale also just- Voiced by Dennis Haysbert. It just took me out of it completely. Because it was still a plant then. Like, it may have not been the big plant it is now, but people probably knew what it was. Until the 2010s, do you know who the number one buyer of kale was? Yeah, it was decorative for the Pizza Hut buffet. That's right. But people should still probably recognize kale as a concept. Maybe not. I definitely didn't, but I was a child. (laughs) Yeah. I guess the movie was for children. Yeah. And like we said, this is the last of the four 2D animated DreamWorks movies, along with The Prince of Egypt, The Road to El Dorado, and Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron. And by far the worst. It is by far the worst of the four. That is a good descending order of the quality, too. Right. They came out (laughs) from best to worst. Yeah. It's also worth noting that by the time this movie is like halfway through development, DreamWorks buys out PDI, which is the digital animation company that they worked with on Shrek and the other early CG DreamWorks movies. And when that happens, that's taken as a sign in the studio, like, oh, we're committing all the way to CG. And so Sinbad becomes this, like, sort of afterthought in a way where a lot of the money is going towards the other projects, except that Katzenberg from Disney is still so committed to 2D. And so Sinbad sits in this weird place at the company, and when it gets released, it is a massive flop. It cost $60 million to make. It only made $26 million in the U.S. Yikes. It opened on July 2nd, a Wednesday, so it had like a five or six day weekend, and by the end of that long weekend, it had made $10 million and was in sixth place. Oh my god. Now, had you seen this before? I had never seen this before. Okay. I watched it when I was a very little kid, and even then, this is probably one of the earliest movies where I realized movies could be bad. It's an ugly movie, too. There are a couple of backdrops that are, like, the backdrops of Syracuse are pretty. But a lot of the animation is really quite ugly. The worst example of it is there's a shot when Sinbad and Marina are in the foreground getting up from one of the, like, fights that they have to deal with on the ship. And Sinbad and Marina are hand-drawn. The characters in the background are digital, and they look like VeggieTales. I think one of the only shots in this movie where I was like, hey, that was pretty cool, and it shows how bad it is where there's one moment where I noticed that it was kind of cool, is when Eris makes the Sinbad puppet, like when she impersonates him, and that's the kinda first cool. step is she makes the puppet, and then she kind of steps into it. I was like, wow, that was the one good moment of animation in this whole movie. That is cool, but also deeply confusing, and it gets at this movie's story problems, because- yeah. At the beginning of the movie, we have Sinbad goes into the ocean. Eris captures him and is like, cool, Sinbad, I need you to steal me the Book of Peace and bring it to Tartarus. And Sinbad's like, done, I'll do it. Then before Sinbad really has a chance to try, Eris just does it herself, which raises the question of why the heck she needed to threaten Sinbad to do it. Because she's trying to drive a wedge between the boyfriends. Why though? Chaos, Will. Chaos. There (laughs) doesn't doesn't have to be any logic. It's just that she likes chaos, which is the best writing loophole because any justification can be, oh, it caused a little more chaos. It doesn't make any sense. No, nothing in this movie makes any sense. I hate it. In addition to being bad, Sinbad also was victim of an unfortunate scheduling situation in that Finding Nemo was just a few weeks into its theatrical run when Sinbad opened. And Nemo was on its way to becoming the highest grossing animated film of all time. 
And uh, that would explain why I never saw Sinbad in theaters, because I saw Nemo in theaters five times. Then a week after Sinbad opens, Curse of the Black Pearl opens, so people can watch a much better seafaring movie. I also saw that in theaters at least twice. Because it rules. Yeah. We just talked about two good movies. I know. And I was not the only person to see Finding Nemo that many times in theaters. No. Here's a thought, though, Mark. Would you have been more likely to see Sinbad if he were voiced by Russell Crowe? At the time, probably not, because I would not have understood who that was. He was the original casting, but he had to drop out due to scheduling. Also bad. DreamWorks really, one of their biggest flaws is their casting of celebrities over talented voice actors. Yes. It is worth keeping in mind Russell Crowe is this weird cultural figure now, but at the time he had been the star of back-to-back Best Picture winners. Right. And that's what I mean. It's like, even in trying to get him and Brad Pitt, it's the same problem of like choosing names over talent. Names over talent is like right under the DreamWorks SKG logo. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's animated. So names don't draw in kids. Kids aren't going to be like, Russell Crowe just won Best Actor at the Oscars. I have to go see his next film. Although, if you remember any of those DreamWorks ads, especially for the digitally animated movies like Madagascar, they really focused on like, David Schwimmer is playing a giraffe. Come see this movie. Right. And I don't think that works for kids. It's just, I guess, to draw their parents in. I guess. But Disney does a much better job of casting, like, or Pixar in Finding Nemo. They got Ellen DeGeneres, who is very talented and a big enough kind of name that people would be like, oh, I recognize her. And then the voice actor of Marlin is kind of the same level of fame. Albert Brooks. Oh, it's Albert Brooks. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, but they're both incredible at the voice acting, not just having famous names. Right, they've done a pretty good job of avoiding stunt casting in characters. I mean, even when, like, Tom Hanks is cast as Woody, that's before he's been winning Oscars. The movie comes out later, but he's cast before that. Right, and I didn't see Onward, but that's kind of a, definitely more of a stunt casting movie. Uh, let me tell you, Onward is Chris Pratt's best performance in, like, four years. He's really good in it. Well, and then I guess Tom Holland is only famous for Spider-Man. And Spies in Disguise, of course. That of hit course. film. <laughs> uh, Holland is is fine in it. Okay. And Julie Louis-Dreyfus is pretty fun as their mom. Yeah. But Pratt is really good in it. Okay. But I feel like that's kind of another sign that Pixar and Disney are both taking lessons from DreamWorks when they probably shouldn't be. Yeah, I think that's definitely out there. It'll be interesting to see how things go as there are fewer animation studios on their own now that blue sky is also under the disney umbrella it's not really clear how long they're going to last universal has both dreamworks and illumination these things are probably going to be combined at some point and it'll be interesting to see what animation looks like moving beyond that that's so sad yeah at least we still have a chicken run sequel on the horizon Yeah, like right after we talked about Chicken Run a week or two ago. And in terms of these episodes coming out, like two months ago. Yeah, I was about to say. One more thing. I just looked at my notes, and it's another thing I have to be angry about. This movie talks about the 12 cities. Like, it's a thing we should understand. (laughs) All right. I think it's worth noting. This movie clearly does not take place in our world, nor does it even take place in, like, our world plus mythology. Because we're told the Book of Peace has protected the 12 cities for a thousand years. So this is just a different universe. Yes. What I want to know, though, is many cities that we are familiar with, like Thebes and Syracuse, exist. What are the other cities? Well, based on the garb of the people there, 
the 12 cities are really throughout the world. Like, there is someone in a, like, sub-Saharan African generic outfit. This movie has a lot of diverse background casting. It does. But the highest profile person is probably Kale. Yes. Definitely Kale, but Again, still... voiced by Dennis Haysbert. Right. Which is always weird. Yeah, it's... I did not feel in good hands, I will say. <laughs> but... The weird thing is, you watch this and you're like, wow, they whitewashed Sinbad. But they didn't really, because I guess he's Greek? I guess. So they somehow managed to avoid that in a very problematic way. But I looked up 12 cities just to see. And there's like an ancient Etruscan thing about 12 cities in northern Italy where they would get kicked out. So I think there were like 12 major cities. And if one took over another, they made it in and the other was kicked out. But it was still like not related to this at all. And I was wondering where they even got the idea. Like, was it the Etruscan 12 cities? No, I think it just probably just sounds cool. It was so bizarre. And it was just distracting. I think that was the biggest problem. I was mostly concerned with the Book of Peace. What is it? How does it work? Why does it matter that it's gone? Because the thing is, it seems not to matter that the Book of Peace is missing. The movie starts off with Proteus like guarding it as it's being brought to Syracuse. And then they throw a giant party and the king is like, I've been working for years to have the Book of Peace kept in Syracuse. It's clearly very prestigious for them to be the city that has it. And so when it's stolen, it's not only dangerous because it's not going to keep the peace, it's embarrassing. But then nothing seems to happen. Now, when they get the Book of Peace back, like the sky opens up, but it had only darkened when Eris showed up to yell at Sinbad. No, if the buildings actually were actively crumbling... It wasn't just darker. There were shots of Syracuse, like, falling apart without the Book of Peace. And then when the lights opened up, you can see, like, it's not very obvious, but, like, the buildings are just getting brighter. Like, cracks are filling in and the ceilings are getting in better condition. So they kind of try and show that the Book of Peace matters. But where was it before? Like, why are the buildings collapsing now that the Book of Peace is gone this time? Exactly. And I think we need, we probably need like to cut back to Syracuse at some point and like see what's going on with Proteus or something so we can also get a sense of how things are getting worse. I compare it to another MacGuffin based movie, Moana. And as they are looking for the heart of Tefiti, we see on Motonui that the island is being consumed by this darkness. Right. There are stakes. And the only shot we get of Proteus during this is him in prison being told to escape and then not. But you don't see, like, the collapse of the city or the king even getting sick or anything that makes you think the Book of Peace matters until, like, a flash before Eris arrives. It should be the Book of Fates. That makes so much more sense. And you were right. The whole time I was thinking, what are on the other pages? Everyone just opens it up. There's no words. It's just a portal into blue with some symbols with 3D depth and then it shoots lights in the sky. Why is it even a book? It could have been anything else. It could have been literally anything. It is worse than the Book of Secrets. And that is not... Uh, the Book of Secrets is full of secrets. The book of... It tells you exactly what it is. You that know is what it fair. is. What's in the Book of Secrets? Secrets! It's a book with secrets in it. But still, this is just so tragic. Tragic even. I will say, unlike some of these other DreamWorks movies, there actually is a lot of romance, so we should probably talk about it. Yeah. So, every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to help us make sense of the romance. 
So I guess we're gonna have to make sense of this with Sinbad. I think the most important thing to say before we get into this is that uh, Sinbad and Proteus clearly were banging a lot before this movie starts. And I think that is important context for everything that happens. This movie is gayer than The Road to El Dorado, which set a fairly high bar. the gayest movie we've ever covered? I don't know about that because Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, does set a very high bar. Yeah, but like, okay, I'm gonna say it. The Gate of Tartarus looks like a giant vagina. And Sinbad has to brave that in order to save Proteus. <laughs> I did not pick up on that because it is that the point, first thing I thought of. At that point, I was not paying as much attention because I was angry. I don't normally watch movies that way, but when I saw it, I was like, oh, wow. I mean, if this movie was made today, there is a chance Sinbad and Proteus would end up together. They should. They should. That should be the pairing. Marina should become queen of Syracuse, and Proteus and Sinbad should sail off together on their own adventure as lovers. That is the only loving couple that I believe in this movie. Okay, so let's start off. Uh, The movie actually starts with, like, some weird mystical Zodiac thing and Eris being like, I'm watching Earth. It's super interesting, unlike this movie. And then in point number one, Sinbad and his crew are attempting to attack Proteus's ship where the Book of Peace is on. Proteus... We had a special handshake, some code words, a secret hideout. It was fun, big fun, but uh, we were kids. We were friends. You're not going to steal this. Not from me. And they're just like running wild. And then Sinbad gets into the room with the Book of Peace. And he discovers that Proteus is the guard. And they start talking about how like they used to have special handshakes and hideouts. Yeah. And at this point, Sinbad just wants to steal it to ransom it back to Syracuse for money. Right. So that he can retire to Fiji. Yeah. That place that everyone knew about at this time. Again, this isn't set in a time period. That's true. The Book of Peace has kept the peace for 1,000 years. There is a chance that Fiji is one of the 12 cities. We have no way of proving it's not. Oh, that's a good point. We do know that in this universe, Fiji is heavily occupied by cannibals. Unfortunate that they decided to include that. So they are reunited and then... Oh, they, right, they have to fight this big kraken that looks like an even worse animated version of the dragon from Shrek. Oh, it's so bad. Cetus. Truly dreadful. Which, Cetus is a monster that is the source of the word cetacean, as in whale. So you would think they would make it look like a fish or a whale or something. But no, it's an octopus kraken thing. You can't ask for the sea creatures in this movie to make sense. Like, for example, the giant fish that apparently has, like, trees that grow sap and stuff that it can immediately retract. So those actually reminded me of, this is a very nerdy shout-out to anyone that reads Brandon Sanderson high fantasy books. It reminded me a lot of the Stormlight Archive, where the world is plagued by massive storms so all the plants were tracked into the ground and i was watching this and i was just like if i find out somehow brandon sanderson got this idea from the film sinbad i will be pissed so anyway they get to syracuse proteus invites sinbad to the party and at the party proteus is like oh it's so good to see you hey sinbad i want you to meet my fiance and sinbad is like yes of course So at that point, Sinbad is like, sure, I'm happy to meet your fiancé. Then they walk over to where Proteus joins his fiancé, Marina. And he's like, this is Marina. Sinbad's jaw drops and he like sprints away. Which is weird because later we're effectively told that 
his problem was just Proteus's future arriving and Sinbad couldn't be a part of it. But here it seems like he's fine with Proteus having a fiance as long as it's not Marina. Right, because he fell head over heels in love with Marina at first sight. Oh, that's right. He saw her walking off the boat and he was like, I will never love again. Except for Proteus, because I think if Proteus said, hey, one more time before I get married, Sinbad's pants would be on the ground faster than you could say Book of Peace. I mean, that's absolutely true. Now, it's also worth noting that we learn here that Proteus and Marina are in an arranged marriage, but Proteus pulls her aside and is like, hey, I know we're in an arranged marriage, but I, like, actually love you, so I want you to marry me. And Marina is like, totally. An encounter that only serves to make it worse that she then dumps him like he's yesterday's Book of Peace, (laughs) because... Like, if you just say, like, it's an arranged marriage, we're done, then we'll be a little more open Yeah, I think to if, her ditching him. If Proteus didn't actually love Marina and Marina didn't actually love Proteus, but it was only through circumstance and their parents that they had to get married, great, I'm all on board with her leaving him for Sinbad. Except the movie goes out of the way to tell us that they are definitely in love with each other. It's which also makes so Sinbad dumb. a jerk who betrays his friend who is dying in his place. Well, he was planning on doing that at least four times anyway. Yeah. Their breakup must have been messy. So this is where Eris, for no reason, frames Sinbad for stealing the book. Again, she could just steal the book. It's not about the book, Will. It's about the chaos and the fact that she wants to just have these ex-boyfriends hate each other and one of them to die. She could frame Sinbad without having had the conversation with Sinbad earlier where she's like, steal the book for me. She could just do the thing herself. Sinbad would have gone there anyway to try to steal the book like he was going to do before he talked to Eris. I understand what you're saying, Will, but she just likes chaos. She's a catty bitch that lives for the drama. No one ever again mentions that she tried to recruit Sinbad to do the job. It matters only because that's where she gave him the directions to Tartarus. She wants to bang Sinbad. Everyone wants to bang Sinbad, Mark. So that plays a role in it, too. Sinbad is, I think, the only children's animated character whose butt cheek I have seen. That was uncomfortable, to say the least. And it, it came out of nowhere. Sinbad like, gets thrown into the ocean in some fight, hauls out, and... Marina is just, like, looking around, and I think the dog, like, nudges her to look at Sinbad and see that his pants just have, like, a flap torn away, and you can see his butt cheek hanging out, and it fills the screen. It's wild. This movie is PG. But back to the situation, Will. The reason she has to frame Sinbad is because she knows that his ex-lover, Proteus, will offer himself in his place, and that he'll get betrayed, in which case Syracuse loses its heir and the Book of Peace. Which means chaos. But the question is, again, why does she need to try and convince Sinbad at all? So she frames Sinbad for stealing the Book of Peace. Sinbad's going to be executed because his only defense is the god of chaos took your book. And everyone's like, yeah, that's definitely not the case. So then Proteus volunteers to die in Sinbad's place so that Sinbad can go and get the book. Invoking that famous law of substitution that we all know about and believe Yeah, you learned it in your math class. Yeah. And then, for absolutely no reason at all, Sinbad is given 10 days in which to accomplish this. In which to sail to hell itself and And back back in 10 days. 
but there's no reason for that 10 days. There's also no sense in the movie of how much time is passing. No, we know it's 10 days to the minute that has passed because he gets back just as the knife is swinging down on Proteus's neck. So Sinbad is off to go to Tartarus, which takes us to point number two. Can you navigate on your own? Yes. Well, good. Then I'll dump your butt in a rowboat and you can paddle all the way back to Syracuse. Sinbad's on the ship and he announces that they should make course to Fiji because he has decided to let his friend die. In this case, it is murder. Yes. He is making a choice that kills this person. He is deciding to murder Proteus. Again, breakup must have been messy. So what he discovers, though, is that Marina, Proteus's fiance, has stowed away on his ship and brought a very nice winter coat along with her, we learn later. Maybe that's Sidbad's. We don't know what he does with his It is cut for her. Either he's a really good seamstress or Marina brought some nice luggage. I mean, Sinbad does have a waist, so maybe they just wear the same size. At this point... Marina is trying to convince him to sail to Tartarus and not just murder Proteus by going to Fiji. And this is significant because she makes a comment like, clearly I can't appeal to your honor, but I have other ways of convincing you. At which point, Sinbad clearly looks at her boobs. This movie is should not be rated PG. This movie needs to either be less horny or more horny. It's the cat's dilemma. <laughs> it's the same issue with the film Cats. They should have made it less horny or more horny, but it exists in the worst possible place in between. So anyway, instead she pulls out a bunch of like jewels and is like, I will give you all of these jewels if you go to Tartarus and save Proteus. And he's like, fine. And then he learns that she bribed all of his crew to let her on board using these jewels because she is just rolling in diamonds that she's hiding somewhere. Yeah, where did she keep all these jewels? I'm telling you, she brought luggage. Yeah, she must have packed for the journey. Anyway, there's, like, some obnoxious, like, back and forth where he's like, a ship is no place for a woman. Like, he's Dr. Doolittle or something. Or Captain Sparrow. That's, like, yes-ish on Captain Sparrow because he is perfectly fine with, like, bringing Anna Maria on board. It's Gibbs who has the Oh, yeah, it's Mr. Gibbs. It's bad luck to bring a woman aboard. But there's no reason for Sinbad to be as mean to her as he is. He's really obnoxious. He's... So annoying to her. And he also, again, was willing to happily commit the murder of his friend. Yeah, he is not a good character. He's quite bad. Um, So he's a dick to her throughout this. Her presence is most significant when the siren sequence comes into play. Because they need to sail through the dragon's teeth on their way to Tartarus, which is where the sirens live, apparently. The sirens are, like, kind of cool visually. They are, like, swimming women made of water. Right, so they're not the bird women you usually see. I thought it was pretty cool. The animation was decent at this scene. But I think Marina would have been brought in by the sirens, if you know what I mean. Well, I think that it is a thing where the siren song is just specifically designed to... Like, in the universe of this movie, the siren song just specifically ensnares men. And so even though Marina would probably be happy to make out with a human lady. She is not entranced by the siren song. That's the only explanation I can give you. Everyone in this movie is gay. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd buy that. So Marina saves them all by sailing through the dragon's teeth. 
It's also worth noting that during this period, like, the seas are really rocky, so people are flying all over the place. And at one point, one of the sirens has entranced Sinbad and is starting to make out with him. And Marina, like, crashes across the ship and crashes into the siren, dispersing her water. And she winds up kissing Sinbad for a hot second there. Gross. Because, you know, that's how you fall into people. You're always bumping into someone and accidentally kissing them. That is how normal humans engage with each other. Exactly. But she and the sentient dog sail their way through... Man, that dog is weird. That dog is weird. We have not talked about Spike yet. Sinbad has a dog called Spike who just slobbers over everything and likes to set off catapults. <laughs> yeah, and is aware that he's setting off catapults. Like, they put treats so that it's like he will pull on the treat to set it off, but he also launches himself by getting in the catapult and pulling the treat. So this dog is aware of mechanics. Yes, this is like he's like Miko from Pocahontas. Yes. But anyway, he loves Marina. The two of them make their way through. And then once they get out of the siren trap, Sinbad is not like, thank you for saving me. He says, wow, you destroyed my boat. I was definitely going to get us through that alive. And he says, he's like pointing at places where there's scratches on the ship's paint. And he's like, that's why women shouldn't drive. It's so Because that's the humor of this movie. Yeah. But all the other crew members fall in love with Marina as a result because they are aware of the fact that she saved their lives. Right. And Spike nudges Sinbad a bunch until he thanks her for saving them. And this is also where we see Sinbad's butt, according to my notes. Anyway, they need to fix the boat, so they go to an island, and apparently- This is the island that's a fish. Right. So apparently all they need is some sap, according to Marina, which I disagree with, but apparently she's supposed to be right. I guess the idea is that they're just going to, like, coat the place- The ship is effectively a car, so the paint on the ship is chipped, so they need to put a coating over it so that the wood doesn't deteriorate further. So they need sap. It's bizarre. And then they find a plant that seems to not just be a plant with sap in it, but just a balloon full of sap. Right. That's the thing is like, this isn't just like a fish with weird natural camouflage. Like there is an ecosystem on this fish that immediately disappears when it wakes up. Also, oh my God, it's it's the thing where like, we're walking around. Oh my gosh, it turns out we're on top of a giant animal when the eye opens, at which point Spike the slobbery dog starts licking the eyeball. <laughs> it's so gross. It's horrifying. <laughs> it's he horrible. then later vomits the eye juice that he had licked up. Is that the point where one of the crew members is like, hey, I didn't get any carrots in reference to the dog's vomit? Because I didn't catch that. I was only half paying attention, but annoyingly, I did kind of laugh at that joke. <laughs> That is kind of funny. (laughs) But anyway. So anyway, yeah, on this like island fish thing, by this point, it's clear that the entire crew loves Marina, except Sinbad would rather throw mud at her all the time. Right. And then they catch a ride on the fish and zoom their way towards Tartarus. Oh, right. This is the part where when Sinbad throws mud at her, he shouts, at least I'm not repressed. Girl, you are repressed. Like, Marina, you can do better than this turd. And also Sinbad, like, go make out with Proteus. I know. It's clearly just driven by jealousy. Yeah. All right. This takes us to point number three. They're, like, in that, like, fight-flirt zone prior to that. There. Just as I planned. (laughs) It's Marina! Does Eris send Articuno after them, or do they just, like, wind up on another island? I think that she sends him, but I'm not sure. In the original version of the movie with, like, Sinbad the Mapmaker, there's a whole incident where they encounter a rock 
like the bird ROC. And they have to like talk to the rock and like they go on a weird adventure with it. In this version, there's just a big snowbird that breathes ice and they have to fight that for a while. They never really fight. They just run away. Yeah, they just run away a lot. He climbs an island using knives as ice picks. What confused me was that then they get up there and they're like, how are we going to get down when he has this big round shield in his back that clearly is just to be used as a sled? And the reason I thought it was weird is we have never seen Sinbad use a shield at any other point. So when he got the shield, I was like, oh, he's planning to use that as a sled. But apparently he just brought a shield like he never does. Right. That was so annoying because it was like, clearly you had a plan. Why are you pretending you don't? Yeah, it's it's dumb. This movie is dumb. Um, he saves Marina from the big iceberg, and she thanks him. And they talk about their respective backstories, where she's like, I dreamed of a life on the sea, but I had responsibilities. And then Sinbad tells the backstory of how he met Proteus, and it just doesn't make any sense. I don't remember it. It already disappeared from my brain, because it was it's so It's supposed wild. to be this, like, honestly vaguely Aladdin-ish backstory, where it's like, Proteus was from the royal house, but he liked hanging out down in the city. And I was just a little scamp running around the city, and we became friends. And we grew older, but then one day, his future arrived on a ship. And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It was you, so I left! Because I couldn't bear to lose him to you! It's so weird. And then they almost kiss. Yes, they, they almost kiss, and she stops it. Point four! Alright. Gentlemen, it's been a privilege robbing with you. I'm coming with you. And don't tell me the realm of chaos is no place for a woman. never say that so that's where we're at they've like almost kissed they're clearly into each other and in point number four they arrive at the gates of tartarus the giant floating vagina and then they make what it is they make their boat fly i was so angry oh i like i like the flying boat i think that's cool it was kind of cool but i was just like this makes no sense. Again, how did Eris expect him to get to Tartarus with the book? This is the thing. The movie works better if you just don't have that conversation between Sinbad and Eris underwater. It's true. You could just, like, have, like, some legend in another freaking book where they're like, oh, this is how you get to Tartarus. Done. And you have to f- just follow the star. That's all you needed to hear. In the Mapmaker Sinbad version, well, that one was supposed to be a Disney musical. There's a whole thing where they need to figure out how to get to, like, the Valley of Diamonds or whatever it's called. And they don't know how, and they realize that the clues are, like, in this old sailor song. That's cool. Again, they did this so poorly. Trying to find a picture of the gates. I want to see how vaginal they are, but I can't find anything. Oh, there it is. Yep, that's what it is. That's what it is. It's shaped exactly like it. Yeah. So anyway, they make their way into Tartarus, which I don't understand at all. And I don't understand their thought process behind it because it's just full of ruins and sand, including the Terracotta Warriors. So apparently China is in Tartarus in this world. China is one of the cities, Mark. It's one of the 12 cities. So how are the Terracotta soldiers in Tartarus? Famously buried underground with the first emperor, now in hell. So 
in the not the map maker version like in the version that is this movie but has like the book of fates and all that stuff when they get to tartarus it's structured a little differently because there eris's deal is i'll give you the book if you truthfully answer the question and her question there is are you in love with roxanne and sinbad says no because he doesn't want to betray proteus by being like i'm in love with proteus's lady he says no and so then they get kicked out they don't have the book which then creates this tension of like, oh, wow, uh, Roxanne knows that Sinbad's in love with her, but also he won't say it. So they go back and if, oh, right, this one, the framing device is not Eris just like watching Earth being like, boy, this is a good TV show. In that one, she's made a bet with Janice over whether people are fundamentally good or not. And so Sinbad coming back to die is used as evidence that they're good. So Janice intervenes. Who's Janice? He is the god of, oh, that Janice. I yeah. was thinking J-A-N-I-C-E. Just like <laughs> a random woman on Earth named Janice. <laughs> just Eris and Janice <laughs> hanging out. I'm, I'm just imagining them like sitting in each other's like suburban home. like, <laughs> And Eris is just like chaos. And Janice is like, mm-hmm, that's right, honey. Now, uh, can, I, uh, can I get you another glass of Coke? They're just drinking Cosmos, trying to pretend to be living their Sex in the City fantasy. So Janice intervenes because Sinbad has proven that people are good. And that's when they then open the book and they're like, Proteus, you're going to be good to go. But oh wait, Roxanne is now the queen. I was wondering in this, are there other gods and where are they? And do they all have a realm of insert thing here? Like she has the realm of chaos. Others have their own realms that you can sail to? Or is it just Tartarus? I mean, there is a certain mythic quality of, like, sailing beyond the edge of the earth, of sailing to, like, the realms or whatever. Like, that I'm actually all fine with. Yeah. I just was curious where the other deities were, kinda. I mean, there are a lot of myths where, like, only one or two gods really factor into what's going on. It's not all Troy. I just wanted to pay attention to anything that wasn't this movie, Will, so I had a lot of thoughts. (laughs) Including, they cut a lot of ropes that should probably just be untied, because you need that rope still. Yes, on the ship. They never untie anything. They just chop it. And it's like, what's your plan to get the sail back down or back up since you chopped the rope to fly through the air? So anyway, at the gates of Tartarus, in this movie, the question that Sinbad is asked is not, are you in love with Marie? it's will you go back to die in Proteus's place and he says yes and Eris is like nah you're lying and Eris also tells Sinbad that he betrayed Proteus by trying to date Marina which feels fair yeah that's fair like Eris you are correct my other thing about this movie being weird in Tartarus Eris makes the deal where she's like if you answer my question truthfully I'll give you the book cross my heart you know a god is bound by their word but Evidence of that, where we've seen that before, is her crossing her heart that she'll make Sinbad really rich if he brings her the book. And we have no reason to believe that she was serious there because she immediately goes and just gets the book herself. Well, if Sinbad had brought her the book, we don't have any reason to believe she wouldn't have made him rich. Right, but there's no reason for Sinbad to believe that her word is worth anything. You are Because after making that deal, she tried to have him executed. But Will, when she crosses her heart, lights show up. So it must be real. It doesn't make any sense. But then... Is this when Marina's like, no, run away. Let Proteus die. Well, yeah, so they're kicked out of Tartarus without the book. And Marina says, you should sail away. I will go back to Syracuse and be like, Sinbad didn't steal the book. It was the god of chaos. As though her saying it will make them all go for it. When she is in love with the person who's going to be executed. So there's a pretty good reason for her to lie. Yeah, it makes no sense. 
The movie's dumb, Mark. It's so bad. But then Sinbad goes back to Syracuse to not let Proteus die in his place. But because he does that, he is proven right. So Era shows up and gives them the book back. Yep. And then in point number five. Well, you know, that means going through the Hydra's lair. Mm-hmm. The Minotaur's haven. Mm-hmm. The Cyclops' den. Mm-hmm. Under the Swan Sea Bridge. Mm-hmm. Through the China Seas. That's a very long voyage. And it's very... Very dangerous. Don't worry. I'll protect you. Proteus just like wanders over to Marina and says, hey, uh, you should go get with Sinbad. And it, it really is. It's like the ending of yesterday. Yeah, it's just, you know what? Go be with him. Actually, he's just saying go be with your real love. The sea. You'll never love me as much as you love the ocean. This movie's dumb. This movie's so dumb. But that's the end. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> All right. I'll say this. It is 86 minutes. It is 86 minutes. Our episode might be longer than this movie if we keep going. It's possible. Probably not, but it'll be close. (laughs) So, Will, after watching all of Sinbad, do you find the romance believable? I mean, I believe that Sinbad and Proteus used to bang. This movie takes place over too short a time frame. It's actually part of its problem. Because if we're given longer with Sinbad and Marina on this ship, it is more plausible that they would feel committed to their task but increasingly disconnected from Proteus as an individual, as opposed to just an idea in their life, and to be drawn closer together. The way this movie is done, it happens in 10 days. Right. Which suggests that, particularly her feelings for Proteus, were never all that strong. Give us a montage. Just give us a montage of them falling in love, and I'd buy it more. You know, over the course of, like, a month, even. They're just mean to each other. (laughs) So, every week we rate the believability of movies on a 10-point scale, with zero being the least believable, ten being the most, where would you rate Sinbad? I have no idea. Um, low. It's probably like a two. It's probably like a two. It's not a zero, because Sinbad apparently did fall in love with Marina at first sight. He's like, that's a hot lady. I want to be with her. Oh no, she's going to be with my boyfriend. <laughs> but, yeah. I think a two is good. There's just, like, no- nothing there. He is terrible. He's incredibly misogynist. He's a jerk. So, Will, what's your answer to the question, is Sinbad dateable? Of course he's not. And, like, I don't know about Marina either because she seems kind of flighty based on the way she drops Proteus, as we said earlier, like yesterday's Book of Peace. Yeah, she just punts him to the side and immediately falls in love with a man who has only been terrible to her. Proteus is done dirty. Yeah. Do you think Sinbad and Marina would stay together? Probably not, right? No. Marina will encounter another person next week. Yeah, Marina will see another hot sailor lady on a boat, and she's gone. Like, that. Good. That seems better for everyone involved. It does. But, Will, if you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? I don't know. I mean, we've got Sinbad, who's terrible. Marina, who's not amazing. Eris is a goddess of chaos. Um, We've got... Uh, someone we have not even addressed, the character Rat on board their ship. I guess Proteus is the only answer. He's a bit of a doormat. Yeah, I think it's like Proteus or maybe Kale. Or the king. I think I'm going with Kale, who seems like a pretty nice dude. He's never obnoxious to Marina, and he seems much more reasonable than Sinbad. Yeah, I think Kale's a good choice. You're in good hands. (laughs) So this is actually an interesting question, and I think we should address it in two ways. A lot of the movies we have watched have been turned into stage musicals. Do you think the addition of music, either on stage or just in the movie, would make it better? 
Okay, first off, I want to note that John Logan, who wrote this screenplay, has actually done a musical adaptation of a movie because he wrote the book for the Moulin Rouge stage musical. Huh. So he has ties to this phenomenon. As far as music, I actually do think that this movie could benefit from music. It was originally conceived as a musical in 1994 back at Disney, and I think that it could provide us more elegant exposition as opposed to the none that we are given in this movie. I think that it could also provide us with some of those tools. Like, we could get the information about the Gates of Tartarus through song. We could also use song montage to show the building of a relationship. You think about the way that, like, um, there's something there in Beauty and the Beast shows a changing relationship between Belle and the Beast over the course of a song. And there's nothing like that in this movie. That's what I was thinking, is it would be good to cover the gaps that the movie leaves, which instead of filling with dialogue or anything like that, when it's almost like it was written as a musical, all the songs were cut, and then they just decided not to fill in the information that the songs gave. Yeah. I also do think this could work as a stage show with those fixes. I think it could be kind of fun and swashbuckly if the story were good. Yeah. So the thing is, if it were good, it would probably continue to be good. But it is currently bad. (laughs) Unfortunately, it is not good. So I don't think it should be adapted. (laughs) That really could describe a lot of things. Like, should this exist more? It's like, well, if it were good. All right, I think that about covers Sinbad, (laughs) Legend of the Seven Seas. This movie was a massive financial loss for DreamWorks. They, like I said, only made $26 million domestic against a $60 million budget. When advertising was added in, this contributed to DreamWorks losing hundreds of millions of dollars in this year and putting the company really close to bankruptcy. Oh my god. Well, next week we'll be discussing a very different film. And a much more successful one for its own scale. We will be discussing the Ang Lee film, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which in direct translation from Chinese is actually Drink, Eat, Man, Woman, which I find interesting that they flipped it. Well, food is much more important to the movie. That is true. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Last question, Will. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from Sinbad? Um... As long as you can do it in an appropriate manner. Little butt cheek apparently works. I just can't get over the fact that this movie showed us Sinbad's animated butt. (laughs) I know, it's so weird. That's not my actual dating advice. My actual dating advice would probably be like, just like, talk to a person that you're in a relationship with instead of storming away and becoming a sailor when you think they're going to get together with someone else. Yeah, I genuinely cannot answer this question. Um, Don't fall in love with your ex's current fiance that's good advice until next time i'm a ginger and i'm gay so between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance bye